White Hot Magazine, one of the world's leading platforms and institutions for contemporary art. Visit us online at whitehotmagazine.com and follow us on social media. Hello, everyone. I am Wells Ray Smith. I'm a curator based in London, and I'm here today with one of Britain's most intelligent and most emotive artists, Maggie Hambling. We're here for White Hot Magazine's podcast with Noah Becker on the occasion of Maggie's ninth solo show with Marlborough Gallery. Maggie's art, if you know it, is so full of feeling. It's embedded with a deep concern for humanity, both for individual people and who they are, their personalities, but also the plight of humanity as a whole. She has worked across painting and sculpture for the past 50 years on pieces that don't shy away from difficult subjects. They have ranged from embracing death, loss, war, destruction and oblivion to subjects like sex and also environmental damage. And what I and many others love about Maggie's work is that it takes a stance. They are paintings that are wildly alive and they move and they speak to us. They carry messages of hope, of joy, empathy, rage her indignance, her anger, outrage. And what that means is that they operate on us as viewers and often in a very sweet spot where many opposing ideas cohabit. So beauty and wildness and freedom come together with death and destruction or laughter comes together with crying. This is work that really has embraced the contradictions of what it means to be alive. Maggie's upcoming exhibition, Real Time, will be at Marlborough Gallery in New York from the 10th of March to the 30th of April and will include a selection of paintings from the past decade. Remarkably, this is Maggie's first exhibition in New York and it is very long overdue. And today we will talk about the paintings in that show, but hear from Maggie on what it means to be an artist in the world today, how she started out on love, on death, on making creativity and that vital spark of life. Welcome, Maggie. How are you today? What did you have for breakfast? (laughs) Cup of coffee and the first cigarette. And before we dive into the work and the works in the show... I wanted to acknowledge that we're just sitting together here in London in one of your studios. Can you describe for the listeners where we are, what it looks like, and and how you use this space? Well, as you see, it's uh, probably the the floor is the largest ashtray in London. And it's in South London. I always get lost across the river. And you see around you various paintings, uh, one of Henrietta, recent self-portrait, a uh, portrait of Sebastian Horsley up to the other end, things now and things from the past around the room. Mm. And you said it yourself, it has a wonderful light. It has incredible light, yeah, beautiful, just natural, um, and it's it's a very white space, although not a pristine space. Far from pristine. Yeah. <laughs> and that—that that, uh, is the painting wall over there with all those 
splashes. Yeah, that show you show you're working in many ways. Well, I paint it out white every so often, but they come back soon enough, so there's not a lot of point. Yeah. And moving on to the works in real time, your exhibition, um, it seems to have three main bodies of work that I think show you to be sensitive about the world around you uh, and how you've brought your gaze to some of the most troubling issues of our times, including environmental disaster. So before we dive into these pieces specifically, can you tell us about how you begin to work with a subject? What might be going through your mind as you start a new body of work? Well, I suppose art began when I was about seven or eight at school in Suffolk, where Uncle Tom's Cabin was being read to us. And the fashion at the time in those old arithmetic books full of squares was to fill in the squares with, with, with crayons. And if you had a mm. gold crayon, you were absolutely it. And so everyone was sitting around filling in their squares. But I actually listened, and that book is very much about slavery and slaves being beaten. So I tried to draw the slaves being beaten. And I think that's really when it all started. Mm. And then this strange occurrence when I was 14, my next school, uh, when I did nothing but flick paint at people and generally draw attention to myself because I was deeply in love with the biology mistress who was invigilating the exam. And then <laughs> I saw the clock and it was 20 past three and I realized at half past three I had to hand in a painting, so I did one. And when the results came out, two or three weeks later, I was top of art. And I, I was quite shocked and surprised. And I thought, oh, it's worth looking into this, you know. So you don't have to try and you're good at it, you know. And then I remember staying up until two o'clock in the morning trying to paint the night sky out of my bedroom window. And I took them into school the next day and they were all laid out. And the art teacher, now dead, she was called Yvonne Drury, and she was a proper practicing living artist. And I was sort of standing in the corner, and I was on the point of tears, and she said, what's the matter? And I said, well, I was up till two o'clock in the morning trying to paint the night sky, and everyone, all the girls were laughing at these, these paintings. And she, she said, it has to be watered off a duck's back. Don't take any notice of what mm. anyone says about your work. You're mm. your own best critic. And so... That's really where it all began. Yeah, yeah. I guess with tragedy, tragedy and love and, and just going for it. I did read something yesterday that Beethoven wrote some response to a critic um, that was printed that told him to fuck off and I just thought that was the, the best two words an artist could possibly reply. Well, that wonderful thing that Oscar Wilde said... Uh, when the critics disagree, the artist is one with himself. Mm -hmm. And that great actor, mm -hmm. Donald Wolfitt, if he got a good review, he'd say, what an intelligent person. And if he got a bad review, he'd say, written by one of my enemies. Yeah. And so it's quite true. Yeah. Take no notice. And, and I never set out, set out to be controversial. It just seems to happen, particularly with the sculpture. Yeah, yeah. But that, that surely, I think, is you staying close always 
you know, to your vision and not being swayed by other people's ideas of what art is or what it yes. can do. I mean, I said at the age of 15, I took my first two oil paintings of Suffolk landscapes to show Cedric Morris because my parents needed some sort of encouragement. This was a good idea because I decided that I was going to try and be an artist. And I let, it was a summer evening and Lett came to the door and Lett was very tall and frightening and I said, is Sir Cedric Morris at home, please? And he said, Cedric Morris is having his dinner. So I said, may I wait, please? Because having plucked up the courage to go, you know. Yeah. And uh, I went in. And Cedric was very charming and giggly and funny. And Lett was bringing him dish after dish. I mean, it was 1960. I mean, who'd heard of couscous in <laughs> Suffolk in 1960? Anyway, and at the end of this dinner... Cedric said, put the paintings up at the end there. And I put them up, and he was very encouraging, but made uh, certain criticisms, and then let wandered back in the room. And he made entirely the opposite criticisms, mm. but was very encouraging, and said, well, I suppose you're still at school. And I said, yes. And he said, well, come and paint in the holidays. And so the first day of the holidays, I was there. But I was too nervous to go up into the house, and I sat in the ditch at the end of the drive and painted the ditch yeah. and then out came this old painter called Lucy Harwood ringing an enormous cowbell and I went in and that's really where life began and I worked mm -hmm. with Lett in the kitchen and it was Lett who said the most important thing to me that anyone's ever said he said if you're going to be an artist you have to make your work your best friend you know whatever you're feeling you're feeling sad you're feeling happy you're feeling bored you're feeling randy whatever you're feeling go to your work and have a conversation with it and he also said there's no point in being an artist unless you have imagination mm -hmm. so these wonderful things were said to me as i was cutting up the carrots in the kitchen yeah. you know and the great thing was it bent an end the east anglian school of painting and drawing lucian freud had been a student there years before me uh, they, they, you know, the thing was to be independent, to be yourself, to ignore fashion. Yeah. And that's the great gift, and that art must be the priority of your life. And uh, it's, I mean, my time in the studio, whether I'm in Suffolk or in London, that is real time, do you know? And outside the studio door, well, you know, have a drink, have a laugh, have a cabaret. The rest of life is the rest of life. The time that's real is when I'm trying to do something in the studio. Yeah. And maybe Cedric Morris and Let Haynes and Suffolk is quite a wonderful way to segue into the Walls of Water works that you will have on show at Marlborough. Um, well, this was after... Many years of going, first thing every morning, I get up very early, as mm -hmm. you know, I get up at five in the summer, about six in the winter, and make a drawing first thing. We've, well, the last couple of, two or three years of my left hand in a sketchbook, using the, the dipper at the top of the bottle of ink and not knowing quite what's going to happen. Uh, so that's first thing every morning. But for four years, I used to go first thing every morning to the sea and make drawings of the sea, and there are many, many paintings of the sea and then there was this extraordinary storm at Southwold a bit up the coast from uh, from me uh, and I witnessed these waves which were 20 feet high crashing 
onto this sea wall, this little sort of seemed like nothing, this little man-made concrete sea wall and the, the power mm. of, of nature sort of getting its own back, as it were, and it was very beautiful and very frightening. And those walls of water came from that experience and they were shown at the National Gallery in 2013 and we have a, I've always kept them. And so we have, uh, uh, I think, five of those mm. big paintings in the show. Mm. So they were a result after, you know, the, the, all the, the paintings of the sea, uh, then the walls of water, and then it all turned. I mean, that was nature, sort of raw in tooth and claw coming at us. Yeah. And then that became the Edge series, which is about what we're doing to nature, how we're fucking up the planet, how we're fucking up the world. And that became the Edge paintings. Yeah. I mean, one thing follows another. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. The, the Edge paintings seem to me uh, to have a similar but actually quite different aesthetic to the Walls of Water. I don't know if you would agree with that, but the Walls of Water are terrifying devouring you feel like you might you know you the water can get anything and it might come and and get you yeah and i think the edge paintings are slightly more, more, more of a lament exactly yeah a lament for how we're behaving how man woman man all of us are what we're doing I mean, will one's grandchildren's grandchildren, you know, actually see a tiger, for instance? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that is, you know, the third body of work, which is the animals, because uh, I painted a painting called The Last Animal, where everything is black and destroyed, and there's this sort of skeleton of this animal, which is an ambiguous animal. It could be a dog, it could be a sheep, it could be... A sort of deer or anything, but like the last animal on the planet. Mm -hmm. But the 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 animals in the show. I mean, the, there's dancing bear and a rhino without a horn and an elephant without a tusk. And it is what we're doing. Yeah, and they're all in states of being abandoned or being injured or being trapped in some way. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me they they kind of edge, as with much of your work does and has over the past 50 years, around this idea of death, of either approaching it or it's looming, even though the works themselves are so full of... Life? <laughs> Good, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> um, and... But I, I wondered, with the animals and with the edge paintings, and as you say, you know, we're, we're fucking up the world... How much does that weigh on you? It weighs on me every day. Yeah. You know? And I hope that they are painted with some kind of compassion. I mean, I put off making these animal paintings for several years because, you know, as Henry Moore said, you know, the enemy of art is sentimentality. And uh, I, I hope the paintings are not sentimental. They apparently are not sentimental, mm -hmm. thank God. And, and I, I mean, I identify with the dancing bear, for instance. I yeah. identify. And, of course, the older one gets, it's quite... 
ah, I suppose it's quite a thing to have my first show in New York at the age of 76. Yeah. But I think that's quite... It's quite good. I mean, uh, I mean that I'm a woman, that I'm older, that I'm a dyke. I think that's all sort of right moment somehow. Yeah. I wanted to ask about actually your how you identify as I I would say queer, but you just said the word dyke. Oh, well, what, queer. What word do you use? I promised Derek Jarman always to use the word queer because he thought the word gay implied something casual and flippity gibbet mm. and you know up in the air and nice you know he always made, I promised him I'd always say queer so I try to remember to say queer okay but I much prefer the word dyke to lesbian anyway well let's go for a dyke we can <laughs> say it but um I feel like artist identity is so much at the forefront of criticism at the moment I mean it's a thing that curators writers were talking about we're looking at people's biography and I wondered if being a dyke has impacted the work, but also the career, your career. Do you think it's helped, hindered, been completely irrelevant? Does it matter? Well, after I'd managed to be an art student for seven years, two years at Ipswich, three years at Camberwell, two years at the Slade, yeah. in the glorious days of grants in the 60s, uh, and I realised I couldn't be a student any longer, and... A friend of mine said, well, if you're going to get anywhere in the art world, you've got to be a male Jewish homosexual. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple of those things I can't manage. No, no, no. I was already queer. Um, uh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't get it. Like when women's art started here, you know, there's this great discovery that women made art, you know. Yeah. And I, I just thought, what a lot of rubbish, because... You know, in the 60s, Bridget Riley had represented England at the Venice Biennale, and I said, well, what's the problem? What's the problem? Uh, and I, you see, I think an exhibition of women's art, I know there was one at the Tate a couple of years ago, which I was in, but this sort of veil comes down between mm -hmm. the person going to the exhibition, you know, they're going to see art by women. So bloody what? You know, you might as well have exhibitions of people with red hair. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it, it, it's just whether anything is any good or not is what matters. Yeah. And as Picasso said, we're all partly male and partly female and you have to bring the whole thing together to make a work of art. Mm. Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard that line before. but It's quite good. But it's, it's a great one, yeah. Um, back, I guess, to painting and this idea of making a work of art and making a good one, it strikes me that so much of your work is, is about the feeling you put into it, but also the feeling that we as viewers might get, you know, what it might do to us and operate. Well, something, operate. something, something crucial, that first teacher, Yvonne Roy, said to mm -hmm. me was that an artist doesn't choose the subject, the subject chooses the artist. Yeah. And I think a piece of work can only move someone else insofar as the artist has been moved by the subject in the first place. Yeah. I mean, a lot of artists seem to me to be looking up their own navels, but we won't go into that. <laughs> uh, you know, life dictates what I paint. People ask me what I'll be painting in six months. I don't know. Mm. I mean, who knows if somebody... Uh, you know, my friend 
the jazz singer George Meddy said I'd go down in art history as Maggie Coffin Handley yeah. <laughs> because of when someone you love dies, you know, the, drawing them. The first one was my mother lying in her coffin, which seemed to me a very obvious thing to do, but it always surprises people. And it's the last time you're going to see them, for goodness sake. And going on painting people after they've died, which I did with Henrietta Marais, which I did mm. with George Melly, which I did with my father. I mean, if you love someone, they go on being alive inside you. Yeah. And so I think artists are very lucky to have this positive way of grieving. Yeah. You know, because, yeah. it, it, I mean, I, I remember this studio was full of paintings of George Meddy for a couple of years after he died, and they were painted with as much life as I could make them. Mm. And then the lorry came to take them to the show at the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool, and I came in up here the next morning, and, and all the paintings were gone, and I said, you better face it, Maggie, George is dead. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, they yeah. go, people go on being alive. I still, you know, you dream of them and they're all around. Mm, mm. This idea that life dictates what you paint um, uh, without being too general could in some way be a unifying philosophy behind your work. Because one, one of the incredible things about it is that as soon as you try to put you in any box or characterise what you do as portrait painter or even just a painter or a sculptor or someone who looks at war or landscapes um it changes you know you're very difficult to categorize good 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 because uh, there's this terrible thing of ist you know portrait ist mm. landscape ist something ist i mean i mean i suppose i'm an artist but <laughs> that's about it you know uh uh, and, and people feel much uh, cosier when they've got people in boxes, you know, like impressionism, yeah. expressionism, ism, 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 ist, ist, ist. Uh, and and they, then they feel happy with it. Well, I'm not like that. No, no. And how are you feeling about having this show in New York? I'm very excited. I'm very nervous. You know, be, yeah. people say, well... Uh, how could you be nervous? You've had so many shows. But, I mean, each time you have a show, if you've had any good shows, you know, the next one's got to be as good, if not better, than the last. And you are naked on the walls, you mm. know? So, of course, I, I'm nervous, but no more than I would be at a show in London. Yeah. And this is something we actually haven't talked about before. Uh, and I, I didn't ask you last time we met, but did the pandemic and this period of isolation change how you approach your work in any way? Not at all. I still get up very early yeah. in the morning and I can't go into the studio and make a drawing like a pianist doing the scales to renew the sense of touch mm -hmm. every morning. Ah, just the same, just the same. And it was quite nice not having to see people what didn't want to see. Yeah. <laughs> and just be able to get on with it. Yeah. And, I mean, what I like about Suffolk is you get the sense of a whole day. There's the early morning, the later morning, lunchtime, early afternoon, later afternoon, early evening, later evening. In London, it all seems like the same, do you yeah. know? Yeah, But in Suffolk, you get, and you know, I grew up with the mud in Suffolk, and I think where you started, where art began for you, is very important. Mm -hmm. And... One other thing I, I wanted to ask, particularly about these works in the show, um, 
is you obviously have the edge paintings and they're called the edge paintings, but they really seem to actually be at the edge, kind of at the edge of life, potentially at the edge of representation that these images might be heading toward oblivion in some way. And well, in... I'm getting older, you see, Wells. And <laughs> yeah. uh, as I get older, I try to say more with less. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I hope that'll get across to people. Mm. And, you know, when, when I was a child, four or five, I used to walk into the sea, apparently, and talk to it the whole time. <laughs> talk, 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 talk to the sea as if it was my friend. And now I listen... Yeah. Do you know? And I yeah. identify with the shingle, which is being eroded uh, as life. Uh, you know, it's okay being 50. I'm not very good at arithmetic, but 50, you know, you're halfway there. But yeah. Come 60, come 70. Um, well, on we go. You know, I'd like to die with a painting knife in my hand, but uh, let's hope so. Great. Yeah. I'm. I. If that's a dream, I'm sure that could... That You're not drinking your coffee. Be true. I will have some coffee. Um, this this edge, though. So in the catalogue, James Carhill writes really beautifully, I think, about your mark making. And he says uh, that the paintings show the ability of paint to withhold or disclose an image. It's a picture under pressure of dissolving. And you have previously said, and you've lambasted me for calling your work abstract, <laughs> but I wondered um, if you can elaborate on that. Why are they not abstractions? If they were well, quite, quite simply ice caps melting. I mean, what mm. could be more figurative than that? Mm. Said in the most, I hope, saying more with less. Uh, I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah. Well, it I. It's fascinating to me because it seems that you, um, you know, when you studied and had your origins as an artist in the 60s and 70s, that may have been a time where abstract expressionism was probably quite hot on the scene. Certainly, certainly in the 60s, shows at the Whitechapel of exactly. Jackson Pollock and Rothko and the, yeah. Yeah, all the Brian Robertson big, big shows. Um, but and and then there were also the painters, some of whom you've mentioned already, like Lucian Freud, Francis Bacon, I guess even the pop artists to some degree. Well, you see, at Camberwell, I worked consistently in the life room from the model, and I made mm, made various ventures into pop art, into abstract expression, in, into op art even, all those things mm. that were going on. I experimented with all those things. But it was very odd. If it, it, When you went to see a bacon show at Marlborough, it was regarded as rather a dirty habit, do you know, because abstract expressionism was it. Right. And there was this painter being figurative. Mm. You know? But what a painter. What, what, a, painter. what a French painter, French touch of the paint. What yeah. a painter. The master of torment and feeling he was. Um, do, do you see yourself as part of the lineage, either of artists who are older than you and your contemporaries or from completely different generations? Well, you know, if I, if I had to take a painting with me on a desert island, I did desert island discs, but they, yeah. they, 
they don't ask you if you'd like to take a painting. Um, it would be the last self-portrait of Rembrandt. Uh, it's called the laughing one, actually. He's mm. just smiling. But, you know, the disillusion of the face, the, the freedom of the brushstroke uh, is just incredible. It's quite a small painting. It hangs normally in Cologne. And um, I would say that Rembrandt is my major, for his compassion, Yeah. my major person. Yeah. But I, you know, I mean, I respond to the way a Rothko breathes. I mean, I think that art has to inhabit that territory where life and death meet, where mm. they cohabit, where they're the same mm. thing almost. And the way a Rothko breathes has that quality, and, and Bacon has that quality. Constable has that quality. Yeah. Uh, Cy Twombly has that. I mean. Yeah. Uh, I think that's very important, this ambiguity and this mysterious place. And the thing about oil painting is that unlike a photograph, which has happened, you know, a photograph is inevitably history because that thing has happened and it's politely on the wall under glass. Uh, you know, a, a, a great painting uh, can seem as if it's happening in front of you, that you're yeah. there at the very moment of creation. Yeah. And that's what oil paint can do, the yeah. sexy old stuff. I agree with that completely. That, And there are a lot of painters around that are image makers. But I don't think I'm an image ma ma maker at all. I mean, I try to say whatever I'm trying to say with mm. the paint, the mm. paint, the paint. And when it's going well, I don't know what's happening. I mean, people see faces and animals and all that in my wave paintings and in the walls of water and the rest of it. I, they point them out to me. It's very nice <laughs> to see them. But when a painting is really happening, I haven't a clue what's going on. Yeah, well, nor do I. That's the great mystery of, of painting, in a way. But I, my experience with your paintings has been that they are in many ways, frustratingly powerful. You know, I like <laughs> to think that I'm in control, right? And then you step in front of your works and wittingly, or as the case may be, not, they make me move and step in front of them and step back. And suddenly, you know, it's this great moment of like diving into uncertainty and you think, oh, shit, <laughs> you know, here we go again. Um, but, but they have that process of being made in front of you and, and made and remade. Good. Yeah. I know somebody once said, how do you get the texture in your paintings? And I was so angry. I mean, texture to me belongs to velvet or leather or something like that, you know. Mm. And, I mean, it's a history of mistakes, you know. It's yeah. not texture. It's, it's a history of mistakes over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, some paintings can go on for a couple of years. Some paintings can happen in the morning. There's never any. And the, the odd thing is when I have a whiskey at 6 o'clock and I'm feeling quite good about the day's work and the next morning I go into the studio and it's just shit. And then I can feel I've had a shitty day and mm. I go in the next morning and it's not so bad. I mean, it's all very mysterious. Yeah, yeah. And is the challenge as an artist to just go with it and not try to control it, not try yeah, to make yeah, it Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the subject has to be in charge of me, otherwise it's yeah. not going to be any good. It's going to become mannered and dead. Aren't you going to ask me the most traditional question? 
How I know Maggie, when the work is finished. How do you know when your work is finished? <laughs> well, I think you know what I'm going to say. The best answer to that traditional question was given by Andy Warhol when he was asked how he knew when a work was finished, and he just said, when it's sold, best answer ever. Yeah, I mean, that is amazing. Because it means nothing to do with money. It means it's gone, it's gone. I mean, there's a terrible moment in painting when when it's actually going right for once, because, you know, I live in a state of doubt the whole time, but mm. something's going right, and the temptation is to sort of tickle it up a bit here and there, do you know? And then you've killed right. it, killed it again. And do you think you have that temptation when you go to New York and you install the show and see the Well, I'm not, taking my paint, my br- painting, I'm not taking my brushes with me. You wouldn't dare touch <laughs> no, them. No, I mean, I, I, I destroy a lot of work, so... You know, there that the paintings are, and I have to live or die by them. Yeah, yeah. Um, we are very nearing the end of our time, which is so sad, but I, I want to ask about um, your legacy, if I can, and if that's not too much of a morbid question, because it <laughs> seems to me, we've spoken about Cecily Brown before, yeah. who's a dear friend, um, but it seems to me that you, yeah, have just had a monumental impact on younger generations of, of painters who are working representationally and working with the sexy stuff of it all. Do, do you think about your legacy? Is I never that... think about my legacy, no. no. No, no. No, I don't think about my legacy. Uh, there was a moment in the controversy of the sculpture on Albra Beach, do you know, when everyone was so against it. And I and I asked uh, one of the fishermen who sells fish in the early morning, and normally I'd gone there and bought a bit of fish and never said anything, because very silent Suffolk people. And, and anyway, it was the height of the fuss. And I said, well, do you think the sculpture's going to go or stay? And he said... He said, only one thing will sort that out. And I said, oh, what's that? And he said, Davy Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning, you know, the sea will come in yeah. and scallop will disappear or it won't. I feel the same way about this word legacy. I mean, I, I really, I live in the moment and paint in the moment and I don't think about legacy. Great. Well, Maggie Coffin Hambling, good luck. <laughs> With the show in New York, I hope it is a beautiful moment. And thank you so much for your time and doing this podcast.